0: Amos chapter 7 and verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, Forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. Thus he showed me. And behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line. With a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there, But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was an herdman, and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city. And thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity, forth of his land. Amen. It is the word of the living God. May the Lord be pleased to add the stamp of his approval and his blessing. To the public reading of his precious word for his name's sake. Let's take a moment to bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, now we come to praise thee for thy word and for the faithfulness of thy word in every generation. When we think of those who have spoken to us the word of God, who are no longer in this world, we rejoice that the word that they spoke to us in those days is still the word of the living God today. And so, Father, we beseech thee now that thou wilt write the word on our hearts. O Father, grant that today thy Spirit's power will be the enabling that we need, not only for the proclamation of the word, but for the Reception of the word. Oh Lord, make it a word in season to every soul. Hear our cry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Prophetic ministry in the Bible is the indictment of unbelief in God. And the indictment of rebellion against God. The prophet Amos, with whom we are concerned today, was not the first one God sent to the kingdom of Israel. And he was definitely not the last. Others went before him, and the message they proclaimed fell on deaf ears and hard hearts. You will know I'm speaking spiritually. The testimony of the Lord's prophets to the people of Israel became the object of odium to the people of that northern kingdom and especially to its civil and religious leaders. Some prophets, like Amos, were from the kingdom of Judah in the south. That is because in the northern kingdom, there just wasn't much from which God could choose. So some came from the south, but they received God's call to go from their native kingdom to preach in the northern kingdom. Beyond the centuries-old distrust by the people of the northern kingdom towards the people of the southern kingdom, the religious abandonment of the northern kingdom of the legacy of the kings David and Solomon flashed forth in determined opposition to anything to do with the worship of Jehovah. Amos described the false religion of the northern kingdom as the sin of Samaria. It was the long-standing worship of the golden calf that King Jeroboam I set up in Bethel. And the other one that he set in the far north of the kingdom At Dan. Those two calves were the progenitors of others, so that by this time there were a whole collection of golden calves in Bethel. So throughout the generations, the people devoted themselves to those idols as to Jehovah, as Jeroboam the first intended. The false religion became so much part of the society and corrupted the culture to such a great extent that the people despised all entreaties to turn away from it. Not even the campaign of King Jehu, one of the kings of the northern kingdom, who campaigned against the religion of Baal worship, and became the instrument of God in extirpating from the northern kingdom the worship of Baal, not even Jehu stopped the worship of the golden calves. Prophets like Amos warned the people, from the the regular common people all the way to the false priests and the false prophets and the kings, That God's judgment was approaching. Amos warned in chapter 8 of this prophecy that God determined to bring into the land the famine of hearing the words of God. The years in the 8th century BC were years of wickedness. Across the kingdom. Amos delivered God's message to to Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Who reigned one of the longest periods in the history of the northern kingdom. And his reign was a time of national prosperity that cloaked a period of moral and religious degradation. In the passage that is before us today, the Lord declared through his servant, the prophet, that the fury of apostasy could not derail the purpose of God to judge the land. If only the people knew that only about 40 years remained In the kingdom's existence. Amos felt the loneliness of his position and his calling. And he felt the contempt from the people of Israel. Especially from the king and the chief priest. But he took comfort in the truth. That he was nothing when God called him. And so he tried to carry out that divine call. There were other people who lived in the northern kingdom during those years who also tried to follow the true God. In the conflict between Amos and the king's priest, there was encouragement for those people. If Amos refused intimidation, they could refuse it as well. They could persist and persevere in their service of the true God in spite of the official policy of their country. The experience of Amos in the face of the king of Israel and of his false priest was the evidence of divine support in devilish times. Divine support in devilish times. Let us think upon that theme in this passage today. You see then that the reality of social and moral decay is scarcely a recent development. Those who inhabited Jeroboam II's kingdom and who tried to follow that which was right in the sight of God in their own homes, cast their gaze about them in their country with growing despair. Now, to be sure, the worship of Baal did not any longer carry the royal endorsement in the land. And for that, the people could be thankful But apostasy from the truth of God still reigned over the land. The golden calves were still there. And the fruit of that apostasy and of compromise with it was the acceleration of wickedness. And they always go together. We are eyewitnesses of that acceleration in our land. As we have seen this past week, the mere suggestion that the Supreme Court of the United States may overturn the infamous Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 and return to the states the regulation of abortion on demand unleashed a tidal wave of fury at every level. The abandonment of God's truth at every level of society yields a bitter harvest. And we are witnessing that harvest before our eyes. On many college campuses, any remaining shreds of morality in the relationships between men and women, students have disappeared. I heard a story this last week of a woman whose daughter was a freshman at the University of Mississippi and that she was having trouble studying because the University of Mississippi has, yes, the University of Mississippi has made it legitimate for people from opposite sexes to be in each other's rooms, sometimes as late as two in the morning. So here was this freshman student who was having trouble even studying because in her room a man was in there with one of her roommates. And not even Christian colleges have been immune. The purveyors of perversion campaign to export their wickedness into school classrooms of the youngest children. And the political leaders of the land, especially the national government, see no problem with that approach. Think of it in many cases. A single generation has sufficed to provide growing hostility to everything decent and right. Christian people feel the walls closing in around them. And they wonder how many are left that will do what is right. When so-called Christian leaders argue that the Bible does not require belief in the creation of man by the direct act of God. Then the fruits of apostasy and compromise with it have ripened for the awful harvest of divine judgment. To such a circumstance. God called Amos from among the herdmen of Tekoa to preach the truth against the wickedness of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Amos was a simple man. He was a humble man. But he believed God. And he did not hesitate to declare all that God revealed to him and all that was written in the scripture of truth. The threat by the ungodly, religious, and civil rulers did not shake the confidence of Amos in the word of God. The times in which Amos lived and labored breathed the atmosphere of satanic delusion. But the prophet, even in the face of profound opposition, maintained his position. He was like Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms many centuries later. He knew the reality of divine support and enabling. And that support in those devilish times followed three lines of thought that I leave with you today. First, there is the standard that the Lord has set. Verses 7 through 9. In the vision Amos saw, the Lord appeared standing on a wall with a plumb line in his hand. Now, anybody who's ever done any construction knows that we have entered that realm with the statement of the plumb line. The key to these first three verses in the passage is that the plumb line that Amos saw is the measuring tool that God will apply to his people, namely to the people of the kingdom of Israel. It will be the plumb line by which God will establish the truth concerning the wickedness of King Jeroboam II and his subjects. Now the plumb line provides the standard by which builders determine whether a wall is straight up and down, erect. Carpenters and other builders use levels to determine whether a wall is horizontal from end to end. If you've ever seen uh, block layers or brick layers, you see that they have a string stretched between two points and they fix those points by use of a level so that they know when they build up to that string that the wall is horizontal. Those who build walls need to ensure that those walls are not only horizontal in that sense, but that they don't lean one way or the other. The plumb line is a line that has a weight. A plumb or a plumb bob or a plummet, as the scriptures elsewhere describe it, at its end. So you have this line it has a weight at the end. And when that line drops from a fixed point and comes to rest in the air, then it provides the reference point by which to determine that the wall doesn't lean. The importance of ensuring that walls are plumb is that they function in the engineering of the building. Without plumb walls, the integrity of the roof is in doubt. Now, I have personally been involved in projects in buildings where I had to wonder, did they use a plumb line? Because the wall was not plumb. So what we were doing there, we had to compensate for that deficiency. Without plumb walls, the roof's integrity is in doubt. So the plumb line is the standard. It is the standard of God's judgment. In our passage that we have read, God told Amos he would set a plumb line amid his people to bring them to judgment. The plumb line was the indicator of the departure of the people from the truth. And God's purpose is was clear. As we read in verse 8, it was judgment. It's a fearful thing when God says to a people, I'll not pass by them anymore. Not let them go on anymore as they have. God said in verse 9, he was going to raise the sword of Jeroboam against, uh, the sword of the Lord against Jeroboam and his descendants. More than a century later, God was to use a similar standard for the people of the southern kingdom. So let us turn to 2 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 21. 2 Kings 21. And let us look at verse 13. Verse 13, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria. There's a reference back to the plumb line that Amos said God would place amid the people there. Now it's going to be used in Jerusalem. And the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish Wiping it and turning it upside down. So, this judgment was going to fall upon the southern kingdom as well. And the nature of the standard appears in the language of another of the prophets, Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. Verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule the people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. You know, that's, that's the covenant that those who protest against the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, that's the covenant they have made. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. The Lord has set up a standard by which he will judge the wicked. And in this passage in Isaiah, we notice where that standard is focused. It is in the person of the Redeemer. The words of verse 16 are quoted in 1 Peter chapter 2 as referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth in that stone shall not make haste. He shall not be confounded. The person of the Redeemer is the core of God's revelation. And so the scriptures of truth are the plumb line in the Lord's hand. The scriptures are the standard that God uses to judge nations. You see, people think that the means of judgment are otherwise, but the scriptures are the standard. And think of what that standard reveals in our country. The people make their idols. And they bow down to worship them. Oh, they may not be bowing down before a literal golden calf, but they make their idols and they worship them. They defy what God has said about the reality of the truth that there are only two genders and that they do not change. They defy what God has said about the truth that marriage is to be only between one man and one woman. They defy the truth that the unborn child in the womb of its mother is in the image of God so that the destruction of that child is murder. In Jeroboam's day, The standard demanded that the people worship the Lord only in Jerusalem. That was what God said. In Jerusalem was where they were going to worship. But like all his predecessors in the northern kingdom, King Jeroboam II defied that demand, and the worship at Bethel and at Dan continued. God stood on the wall that was bowing and leaning. And wobbling. It was about to fall. And that standard God sets amid his church. So let the church refuse any temptation to abandon the truth. Let the church refuse any suggestion of lowering the standard. And making Christ the fomenter of compromise. And that standard God sets in your life. It sweeps away the delusions of sinful reasoning. You judge your thoughts and your words and your actions solely by the Word of God. And ultimately, that standard is the incarnate Word. The Lord Jesus Christ. We judge ourselves not by any other standard. The call to Amos was a powerful call. Here was this simple man, this herder of goats and sheep from the southern kingdom, a gatherer of sycamore fruit, as he said. God called him to deliver a blistering condemnation Of the king in Samaria and of his false priests and his false prophets and of the wickedness of the people. So did the message of Amos humble the people? Not in the slightest. And that brings me to the second thing I leave with you today. There is the slander the apostates have conceived. Verses 10 through 13. The response of the priest of the golden calves at Bethel, Amaziah, was to advise the king, Amos has committed treason. He has launched a conspiracy against your throne. He deserves the harshest punishment. In verse 11, Amaziah summarized the message of Amos. Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. He's dispiriting the people. He's telling them there's no hope. God's judgment would take the people away to a land far away. And Amaziah said, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. God's judgment was going to make the people captives in another land. Now, the prophecy to which Amaziah referred came to pass about 40 years later. 722 BC. That was the collapse of the northern kingdom. And as he warned the king, Amaziah had a message for Amos as well. And briefly put, here was his message to Amos. Get out. Get out of this country. Amaziah said to Amos, you need to go back home. We don't need you here. And the sarcasm is evident in verse 12. Some commentators think that Amaziah was being sincere. I don't find that here. He mocks him as a seer. Oh, thou seer. You can think of him, this herdman and these rough garments that he had. Oh, thou seer, flee thee away into the land of Judah and there eat bread and prophesy there. You get out of here, Amos. This country is not in need of your services. Amaziah said Amos has committed treason. And here was Amaziah the leader, the religious leader of the apostate worship that went on all the time at Bethel. He said in verse 13, this is the king's chapel. This is the king's court. And how many since his time have followed the same line of reasoning. We have made this The king's court. Now, Amos would not be the last prophet to feel the sting of this slander from the apostates. Let us turn to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah 26. Verse 10. Jeremiah was warning the people of Judah at that time that judgment was going to fall upon that kingdom. And we read in verse 10, When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is... Jeremiah, they meant, is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city as ye have heard with your ears. It was the same scenario then. The people did not want to hear the message of the plumb line. This was Jeremiah's message. They didn't want to face the truth that God's judgment was coming. And here is the theme of apostasy. The apostates argue that those who will not compromise with apostasy must be destroyed. Jeremiah is worthy to die. He won't do what we tell him to do. The same was the message to Amos. It's the fury of depravity. And the New Testament... Provides an equally chilling example of the slander that the apostates have conceived. We find it in the third epistle of John. The third epistle of John. And verse 9. John said, I wrote unto the church, But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church." Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Diotrephes was doing evil. Now in the very next verse, in verse 12 of 3 John, we read of Demetrius. Here was a man who was, had the same spirit as Amos. He hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Here was Amos, humbly, but with resolve he stood his ground. The idolatrous monarch and the apostate prophet did not intimidate Amos into giving up the fight. And that brings me to the third thing I leave with you today. There is the steadfastness the Lord's servant has displayed. Verses 14 through 17. Amos had the greatest comfort and the greatest confidence. He did not pursue the ministry of the prophet until God called him. His family history was humble. He was not, he said, the son of a prophet. That is, he had not been around anybody who was exercising the prophetic office. We read in verse 15, The Lord took me as I followed the flock. He was a herder of livestock, of sheep, of goats. Probably not cattle, because we don't refer to cattle as the flock but a herdman. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. God called him to prophesy against the court of Jeroboam II, and against the wickedness of the worship, the apostate worship of the golden calves, The whole history of the northern kingdom was marked by that worship. Now there was no hint, we find here, of intimidation or discouragement. Because Amos, as a simple man that he was, and as a humble man that he was, did not doubt the call of God. And here's a message for us today. We need preachers of the Word who are not figuring out how to increase their popular appeal. We need preachers who know that God has sent them and that God will empower them. There's weakness on every hand. Not least of all in the religious world. Some consult with the compromisers of the truth to achieve what they imagine is greater relevance and impact. But Amos had a simple message and an unmistakable motive. He was in the northern kingdom's capital at God's call and at the religious shrine of the northern kingdom at Bethel. At God's call to declare the message of judgment. So that Amos embodied the ministry of Christ and of John the Baptist, who preceded Christ, they came to call sinners to repentance. They came to warn of God's judgment should there be no repentance. So far from being intimidated, Amos gave evidence of the strongest determination. His word to Amaziah the priest was that Amos would not surrender the field to the apostates. Instead, he warned the iniquitous priest that God's judgment was going to fall on him and on his family. The message that God sent Amos to proclaim found complete fulfillment. Amaziah was going to die in a polluted land. His family was going to be slaughtered. And the people of the northern kingdom who survived the war with Assyria, and there were many who did not, As one has said, if you want to know something about brutality and war, study the accounts of the Assyrians, but don't do it before breakfast. Amos could easily have surrendered to the fatalistic depression that often seizes us in the face of devilish opposition. Oh, what's the use? We can't really do anything. The people of God today know that temptation. They know what it is to fear, to feel that lure, to go down that road. But Amos found his support in those times in the person of God. And that's where the people of God today, with all their concerns about The future and about the tidal wave of ungodliness have to find their support. Amos looked to the power of the coming Redeemer. And it was the Lord Jesus who left a word with his disciples in the Gospel of John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own land, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I, I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let us hear that word of Christ today. Let it resonate in our hearts today. Be of good cheer, he said to his disciples. You're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. That is, take heart. Be encouraged. Christ has overcome the world. So let the apostates and the compromisers do their worst. Christ has overcome them all. I often think of the second psalm. Think of all the conspiracies by the leaders of the governments of this world. How they despise anything to do with that which is right and true. But we read there, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Let us hear the laughter that comes from heaven. Let Christ encourage you today. He has overcome the world, and his victory will become evident on the day of his appearing. Divine support in devilish times. We live in such times. We need such support. Let us rest in that which God has revealed to us. Let us bow in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we rejoice again today in the privilege to contemplate thy holy word, and we do find that we know what it is to find that discouragement, that astonishment, that sense of fatalistic depression. But we thank Thee for this word from our Lord Jesus, that He has overcome the world. So let our faith, as John himself said, let our faith in Jesus Christ provide that energy for the overcoming of the world. O Lord, we pray for Thy people today. We ask, O oh Lord, that in these devilish times, they may learn to rely on that divine support in the scriptures of truth and to know the power that comes to grant strength and encouragement. We thank thee for thy servant Amos. Thank thee for his faithfulness to the calling thou didst give him. We pray that thou wilt grant us a whole race of, of men today who will be faithful to the divine calling, whatever the apostates and the compromisers have to say against them. O Lord, hear our cry today. Stamp thy word upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.